Kings 10. And let me catch you up to speed. Uh, we're doing this series called Prophets and Kings. Our hope um, has been to go through First and Second Samuel, the kings, to kind of tie in the chronicles because they speak into both a bit. Um, our hope in going through this is kind of what we, we sung during the second song, to see the story of the gospel throughout the scriptures. Uh, the gospel does not begin in the book of Matthew. It starts in Genesis. And there's something about looking at the story and the history of Israel and how it came together under its first king and how it divided. If you've struggled with this book, like maybe you've struggled with the Old Testament in this way, like how does this work? Here's kind of what we're doing. Uh, first Kings, we're seeing kingdom uh, united, kingdom united. I think that's my son's voice, by the way. We'll figure it out. Hey, Micah, what's up, buddy? Um, <laughs> it's, it's bound to happen. Uh, he's going to barge it through any second. It's great. Uh, first Kings, we're kind of looking at this idea of kingdom united. So actually, if you've been with us in First and Second Samuel, you're going to notice that Saul's the first king, then David, then after David, Solomon. Now, when it comes to the kingdom, you see all 12 tribes united under David and Solomon. You see all 12 tribes together. Just so you know, we're about to hit like a separation point. In chapter 11, next week, we're going to see like the fall of King Solomon. We're going to see Jeroboam rise up, and you're going to see Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and you're eventually going to see the kingdom split. I've always like struggled with how to kind of place these books. Like there's six books and they're really one book, but we turn them into two. And like I've struggled with this idea of like, how do we kind of see the big picture? Um, I want you to see that the kingdom right now is under one king, but it's about to be divided. So in two weeks, we're going to see, we, we've been looking at kingdom united. We'll see kingdom divided. And we're going to follow kind of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, which prophets went where. If you've always struggled with that big picture, hopefully that will help. We'll have a new little book for you out in a couple of weeks. Just so you know, in the back, we have this little helpful, like how to read through this book together. Um, but we're looking at kingdom united still. This is the peak of Solomon's ministry, really. In chapter 10, we're going to see um, his wisdom is made known to the nations. This is a very well-known passage. This is where the queen of Sheba shows up with her questions to Solomon. This is an, a fascinating part of scripture to me. The queen shows up and she's like, I have some questions for you. And he, he leaves her like breathless, speechless. She's amazed by his wisdom. We're told that he has more silver than the rocks in Israel. So this is kind of the peak of Solomon's life. But we're about to see at the end of this chapter kind of the, the cracks in Solomon's life. And in chapter 11, that's when we read about how Solomon's wives turned his heart away from the Lord. So what we're going to see here, and I want to just point this out right away, Jesus actually references 1 Kings 10. This is a story that Jesus looks back on. And this is where we're introduced to the phrase, the greater than Solomon. That Jesus essentially calls himself the greater than Solomon is here. You know, and, and, you're, and you're missing it. So we're going to look at the title or the, the big idea today is the greater than Solomon. But I kind of have like a subtitle, which is the, looking at from Queen of Sheba's perspective, which is seeking answers, finding God. There's this idea of she has a lot of questions. She's seeking some answers, and she finds God in the process. And Jesus speaks of her in a way of where it seems as if she's a, a believer now. So I want to just pray. I want to ask the Lord to speak, to move. I want to learn from what Jesus says about this. Um, my hope is that we would not just read this as stories, that those are cool for people then, but obviously the greater than Solomon is here. And listen, there's wisdom in Solomon's writings, there's wisdom in Solomon, but there's wisdom in King Jesus. And uh, we just want to really, again, make this more than a Bible study, but God, meet with us. We want to hear from you. We want you to speak and move. So why don't we just do that? Let's pray and ask the Lord to just kind of meet us here and speak to us. So, Father, as we sung that, as we read your word, that is our prayer and that is our desire. That Jesus, you would be seen as the greater than Solomon. As wise as he was, as wealthy as he was, he was the wisest fool. And we thank you, Lord, that um, you are that greater than Solomon. You are the king we've always longed for. You're the king who can answer the deepest cries and questions of our heart. God, I just ask for everyone in this room, I know whether they've been a believer a long time or they're just on the fence or not even sure if they believe this, Lord, I ask that you would meet them, that we would learn from this queen of Sheba, that we too would have a heart that seeks you, that we too would come to you with our questions. God, we know that you are faithful and that you, are, you give us more than answers, that you are the answer. And so we look to you now and just ask that you would just be present in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, there's something wonderful about meeting with someone who's genuinely curious about the things of God. 
I don't know if you've ever sat down with someone, family member, friend, and they're like, I actually have some questions for you. I've met with a lot of people over the years who are genuinely seeking, and I've met a lot of like skeptics, cynics. I'm like, are you asking this question because you want an answer, or are you just asking because you're hoping that would throw me off? Like, why, why are you asking? But there's something beautiful about when you meet someone who maybe even they're a little aggressive, but they have like some deep questions, and they're just like, speak into me. You know, when I was a youth pastor, probably one of my favorite memories of this is um, there was this kid named Isaac who was a Christian who came to our church, but uh, he went to a yeshiva like high school, like a Jewish high school that kind of, you know, he had a rabbi he met with. It's it a really cool thing. He's a, he's a believer, but he's Jewish, and he went to a yeshiva high school in the area. He had another friend named Isaac, so don't get confused. Isaac the Christian, Isaac the not Christian. He brought another friend named Isaac uh, to church one day, and he goes, listen, I've been praying for this friend like I love him. I want him to believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And he was just one of the most passionate. Like, he basically viewed his Jewish schools like, how can I be an evangelist to show them that Jesus is the Messiah? It's such a sweet kid. Awesome heart. I think he's a junior or senior this year, or that year I talked to him. So he brings his friend Isaac, another friend Isaac. Isaac comes, and I, I love, it's so cool when I met this kid, basically blocked out a couple hours on a Sunday, and he just had like this long list of questions. He like literally like, do you mind if I pull out, and he pulls out like papers of questions, like shuffling through them. And I don't know, I'm like energized by that. Like, I love that. He's like, what about this? So it's just for like two hours. He would just ask a question. I would respond. He would say, my rabbi said you're going to say that. And I'm like, okay, what's his response? He's like, this is his response. I'm like, can I respond to that response? And we did this for hours. It was so much fun. Um, and it was, it was really sweet because, yes, it, was not, it wasn't really argumentative, but you could tell, like, I really, I really want to know this. And he had questions around the Messiah and the Old Testament, all that. At the end of it, um, Isaac, the Christian, nudges him and says, tell him why you have all these questions. And he's like, I don't want to. He's like, just tell him. He's like, okay. Hey, so Isaac says to me, he goes, hey, the reason why I want to meet with you and ask all these questions is I've been reading the New Testament. I've been just trying to understand, you know, is there any validity to this Jesus? And he goes, you know, um, this week I had a dream, and here's my dream. And he just shared basically his dream was, I'm in a boat, I'm going down this river, on the side and left and right of me, there's all these hills with all these crosses on both sides. And at the end of the river, I come to this end, there's a man hanging on the cross. And the way he described it was like, as soon as he like looked up his head and looked, made eye contact with me, whether he said it or I just knew it, I knew the person that was on that cross was, was Jesus, was Yeshua. And I woke up from it. But you know, I've been reading the Bible a lot and there's just, maybe it's just a coincidence. You know, and he shares that. And I'm like, or, <laughs> or maybe Jesus is who he claims to be. And it's such a sweet conversation. We got to pray with him. Isaac, the Christian, told me later he ended up believing in Jesus as Messiah. They started a little Bible study at their school. It was one of the coolest things. Now, this was a long process of this Isaac, this other Isaac sharing with him, loving on him, you know, saying, come, question, challenge, bring your frustrations. It's okay. The thing I want to talk about is um, God can handle our questions. God can handle our doubts. We should and we need to bring it to him. We shouldn't be afraid of that. As Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of people's questions. Let them have questions. Let them be frustrated. Let them be, I, I'm wrestling with this here, okay? We, like, who hasn't wrestled with scripture or some of the teachings of Jesus or claims of Jesus? It's not something we're afraid of. Like, yeah, go ahead, wrestle. But there's something about someone actually saying, I'm not content just wrestling. I actually really want to know, are there answers to these questions? There's something about someone like seeking that out. Like, I'm going to go and see if this is legit. This is the Queen of Sheba here in 1 Kings 10. She's basically going, I've heard about this guy Solomon, and the name of the Lord is being made known in a great way, she says. But I want to know if this is legit. Like, I really want to know, is this real? Is there something to this? I'm not really going to get into this too much, but there's something, and maybe you're aware of this, there's something that seems to be happening in a really cool way uh, in Asbury, Kentucky, where there seems to be at Asbury University like a revival breaking out. And I don't want to throw that word out loosely, but it's, it's really cool to see if you're like, if you follow anything, like, I don't know. It's, like, it's on Christianity Today. Sometimes it can get too big and too weird, and you're like, I don't know what's happening. But there's some, there seems to be, I think it's like last Wednesday on like February 8th or something, there was just worship service. It ends, people stay, they slept there, they wake up, they're worshiping, like there's just been like a hunger for God. And it's really cool because you're seeing people like fly across the country to Asbury, <laughs> Kentucky, which is like, who does that? And it's cool because like, is, is this legit? Is God here? And you're like, there's testimonials you can read and people who are describing this. And, and listen, I don't ever want, I don't know what's going on. I really, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's like, is this a bona fide revival? What does that even mean, a bona fide revival? Like, what is that? My thing is, um, they, there seems to be a way in which God is meeting people in a great capacity 
And it's not anything insane. It's just they have a hunger for God. They're describing it as like the love of God being poured out in our hearts in such a way that's overwhelming me. And it's, caught, it's bringing me to repentance. It's bringing me to the love and feet of Jesus. And it seems to be a really sweet thing happening. And it's kind of cool to see people going like, I got to see what's going on. There is like this, ha- I'm, I'm, part of me is going, cool. I, part of me wants to go there, but part of me is like, Lord, do it here. Do it everywhere. Do it again, Lord. You can do it again. It's not subject to that one area. You know, and it's one of those things where I'm saying, but there's like a hunger. People are traveling and going far distances. And that's what the Queen of Sheba is doing. She's hearing about the amazing works and knowledge and wisdom of God. And she's like, I got to get there. Is this legitimate? And so I want to look at this because obviously this story in 1 Kings 10, Jesus uses it as a way to say, remember that Solomon? And the Queen of Sheba sought him out? Well, the greater than Solomon is here. Seek me out. So I want to look at that. The greater than Solomon. Uh, can we do, here's the simple points today. Number one is this, uh, greater than Solomon's wisdom greater than Solomon's wealth, greater than Solomon's weaknesses. Um, the idea of this, we'll spend way more time at number one, and we'll look at number two and three a little bit quicker, uh, just because I think there's a lot more there in verse one through 13. So number one, greater than Solomon's wisdom. Why don't we read verse one through 13, understand the context, what's happening. First Kings 10, verse one, here's what it says. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he'd built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Verse 6, and she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told, told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Oh, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord, lo- the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices at these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Verse 11. Moreover, the fleet of Haram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of uh, uh, almond wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almond wood uh, supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps and the singers. No such almond uh, wood was come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Listen, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of the king. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. All right, let's just talk about the story for a second. The queen of Sheba comes in. Where is, where is um, Sheba? Where is this area? Not really sure. There's speculation that maybe it's in Ethiopia. Maybe it's in modern-day Yemen. Uh, it seems that most evidence points to like the Yemen area, that she traveled maybe about 1,200 to 1,500 miles to see him, to see Solomon. Uh, it is interesting. I'm not going to get into this. There's like f- kind of like Ethiopian folklore that Solomon and Sheba got together. Um, the, the, there's speculation that the Song of Solomon that was written, that woman, the woman with the dark colored skin, lots say that that was the Queen of Sheba. That would be kind of an interesting story. He gave her all she wanted, it says. I don't know. We don't know. We really don't know what's there. Some say, say that, some speculate that, but it doesn't really matter too much. We know that she comes from most likely the Yemen area, comes in and says, I've heard about you, I've heard about your Lord. Actually, look at how verse one says it. The queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. This is cool. Again, this is kind of the the pinnacle of Solomon's uh, kingdom, really. And that's what we see. We see that actually there's still a tension on the name of the Lord through Solomon's actions. It's gonna shift really quickly in this chapter. But there seems to be like, hey, not just you, but the name of the Lord, of your God, is being magnified. And it says she came testing him. And I want you to see that. 
She has like a list of questions. We don't really know what they are. It seems as if they're most likely to trade together. She leaves him gold. He gives her stuff. Like they, they traded. They probably became partners moving forward. Isaiah actually references uh, the people of Sheba. Th- this idea that they most likely continue some sort of trade agreement together. But it seems like she had a lot of questions in a lot of different areas. She ends up blessing God. What I want you to see, though, is she brings her questions to the king. There is something about us saying, I have a lot of questions and I'm not okay. I'm not content just keeping them to myself. I need to seek out an answer. I do want to be really clear. God can handle your questions. Know that. God's not afraid of your questions. God is not like, wow, I've never heard that question before. Thank you so much for asking. God's, God can handle it. But there's something about going from like, I'm skeptical to now I'm seeking. I find it fascinating. This is very important. The book of Proverbs, which Solomon wrote, talks about this desire to get wisdom. I'll read it to you. It's Proverbs chapter uh, 4, verse 7. He says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. You want to know the beginning of wisdom? Get it. (laughs) Seek it out. Like, fight for it. This is what she's doing. She's like, I've heard about your wisdom. I've heard about your God. I needed to see it for myself. I will commend her in that. She wasn't content just letting those questions kind of go through her mind. It's like, let me bring them to you. Again, if you have questions, and if you don't have questions, maybe your imagination is limited. You should have questions. You should have scriptures that come to your mind. You go, I don't get this. Like, ask. Do not keep that to yourself. Do what the Queen of Sheba does. Seek out an answer. So she goes, she seeks it out, and I actually love this. Verse 10 points this out. It says, she gave the king 120 talents of gold. Now, there is something about this. There's something about saying, I value you. I value your time. I do want to reward you for this in some ways. Solomon also said in Proverbs uh, 16, 16, he says, how much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Basically, she gives gold in exchange for wisdom. Solomon says that. How much better to have wisdom than gold? Who cares if you're a wealthy fool? doesn't matter. She's like, let me get, like, so here's the idea, right? People pay all the time for wisdom and information. Classes, books, universities. We will spend a lot of money to try to just attain information. And yet there's this amazing abundance of wisdom here for free. (laughs) I'd say, take it, get it, seek it out. You know, how much better is wisdom than gold? She valued that wisdom. I want, again, to commend her in this. And it says about Solomon, Solomon had answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. Nothing hidden. Do you know that all things are open to the eyes of God? Nothing's hidden from him. God's like, bring it. I can answer your questions. I want to. I want to get into this question really quick, like, was she converted? Was she saved? I would make the argument she was, but before I even kind of get to that point, um, there is something fascinating. She brings her questions to Solomon. He answers it. Her heart is satisfied. She's happy. She's blessing the people. She's saying, blessed be the Lord your God. There's something that changes in her. She basically went from a skeptic or agnostic to a believer, it seems. Let me just point this out. I know you guys might know this, but um, I think in today's world, we kind of get discouraged, and we're like, is anyone in the academic world a believer? Like, does anyone as an adult come to know Jesus? Like, can you come to know Jesus as an adult? Or is it something you're like, you know, you're trained as a little kid and you stay in it? Like, is there really evidence for this? Like, do we see people in the scientific community coming to believe in Jesus? Yes, absolutely we do. I don't care if this takes a little bit of time. I'm going to throw some names up here. All right, this is just fun, okay? So this is the idea. Uh, atheists and agnostics who turned to Jesus as an adult. Can we just give you a few names? I'm going to do it anyway. So you're like, okay. All right. Um, one is Francis Collins. He's a prominent uh, geneticist and former leader of the Human Genome Project. Uh, he was the head of an NIH, actually, um, which frustrated a lot of people. But Collins was an atheist for much of his life before converting to Christianity in his 20s. Uh, I believe he wrote a book that we recommend. It's called The Language of God. He basically looks at the DNA and the way DNA is structured, and he's like, this is coded. This is written. There's no way this is accidental. He came to know Jesus as a believer in his adulthood through science, really. There's just too much evidence that there's a clear design. Uh, next person, uh, Holly. I'm maybe butcher it, but Holly Ordway. She's a literature professor and writer. Uh, she's, she was an agnostic before converting to Christianity in her 30s. She wrote a book called uh, Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. She comes to know Jesus in her 30s. Uh, John Polkenhome, a physicist and theologian who was awarded the Templeton Prize for his work in science and religion. Uh, Polkenhorn was an atheist before coming a Christian in his 30s. These are some names maybe you've never heard of, and that's okay. That's why I want to share some of these names with you. Uh, Rosalind Picard, 
a computer scientist, an inventor. Picard was an atheist for much of her life before con- converting to Christianity in her 40s. Another scientist, another female scientist who converts to Jesus in her 40s. Alan Sandage, this guy's awesome. If you want to look him up, read about him. Uh, he's an astronomer who is known for his work on the Hubble uh, telescope, he's, uh, Hubble constant, and the age of the universe. Sandage was an agnostic for much of his life before becoming a Christian in his 50s. Alan Sandage is actually a really cool guy if you want to look him up as a, yeah, for someone fun to study. Jennifer Wiseman, an astrophysicist who has worked for NASA and served as a senior project scientist of the Hubble Space Telescope. Wiseman is a Christian who has written extensively about the relationship between science and faith. All these scientists, all these agnostics, keep going. C.E.M. Jode, he's an English professor, or philosopher, sorry, who's arguing against Christianity from an agnostic perspective. Uh, this is funny because T.S. Eliot and him had a little back and forth. Maybe you know T.S. Eliot, like that great poet writer. Uh, he turned to religion later in his life, writing The Recovery of Belief a year before he died. Obviously, you know this name probably, maybe not, but Lee Strobel, a, formal, a former investigative journalist and atheist. Strobel became a Christian after earning the evidence for Christianity and finding it compelling. He wrote the, the Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. He wrote some great books. Obviously, and lastly, C.S. Lewis. He's an atheist scholar turned Christian and apologist writer. Uh, in his book, uh, Surprised by Joy, he describes a series of events that led to his conversion. Um, Tolkien, George MacDonald, different people had a huge influence on him. As an adult, he's going, uh, he's, and again, his undergrad degree was basically in ancient writings, um, classic literature writings. And it, for him, he's like, the Bible seems to be so different. And it led him on this journey of believing in Jesus. His whole thing was like, all the myths I read about, Jesus is the myth made real. Um, here's the thing, there's, so m- there's countless names of philosophers, scientists, doctors, as an adult, they go, I can't deny the overwhelming evidence. Listen, my, my point of bringing up this list is just saying, God can handle your questions, but you've got to bring it to him. I don't mind if you're a skeptic. If you're a skeptic, or even if you're a cynic, but don't be a skeptic and cynic and, and not be a seeker. Like, be both. Be skeptical. Be cynical if you have to. But let it, let it produce within you, like, the heart to seek it out. Like, seek it out. Uh, I think for me, one of the books that was life-changing in this area was just The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Maybe you're waiting for that. But um, honestly, it was one of, the, one of the most necessary books I feel like in my, I was around 20 or 21, believer, loving Jesus, following Jesus, but have big questions. And you go, thank you, Lord, that there's people out there who've taken 20, 30 years to write extensively on one subject and to deal with the questions of our heart. And I think that God can handle your questions, but do you bring them to him? Bring them to him. The Queen of Sheba, again, I love it, says she's testing him to test him with hard questions. <laughs> she's like, I got some hard questions. And he answered her sufficiently, verse 3. Everything that she had, he answered. I do believe in a similar way. God's like, I, I, can, I can go there with you. And here's the reality. I don't know if sometimes it's always just questions, right? I don't know if it's like, is it just you have a deep question around science and faith? I don't know, but is it really that? Is there also a moral element to it? Is it the scary element of, well, if there's a God that I actually have to put, subject myself to him and follow his ways, maybe, maybe you have to be an honest questioner. Maybe you have to say, maybe it's not because I just, the science and faith thing, maybe it's because I don't actually want to acknowledge that there's a God who I have to put my life under. And maybe acknowledge that. But then what kind of God is he? Is he a good God? Is he a loving God? Is he a God that is just like, can't wait to put you in a miserable life? Or is he a God that says, I love you? and my kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy? Like, we understand, who, who, what is this God like? I said, bring your questions to him. He can absolutely handle him. Again, don't just be a skeptic or a cynic. Be a seeker as well. It's not enough to just be like, I have some questions. Great. Who doesn't? But seek them out. Yes? Amen? So, uh, verse 4. This is what I actually want to point out. This is interesting to me. Look at verse 4. It says, When the queen of Sheba had seen, she saw, actually, not just heard, she saw all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, there was no more breath in her. I have to point this out, but notice, it's not just what she heard, but she's like, I'm looking at your people. I'm looking at the food on your table. I'm looking at the clothing they're wearing. All of that speaks to me. All of that shows me wisdom. You take care of your people. You feed your people well. You care about the house of the Lord. There is something about that. If you ever feel like, maybe you feel like, it's shallow to care about the little things. I'm very thankful that we have people who care about even this room, <laughs> who set up and say, you know what, it'd be nice if it didn't feel exactly like an elementary school. It'd be nice if we had coffee ready and had food ready. And it'd be nice if we actually took care of the people who came in, the guests, the visitors who come in. Here's a guest or a visitor. And she's like, I'm amazed by how you treat your people. 
I'm amazed by their clothing. I'm just amazed by it. I'm not trying to say like this shallow explanation of like we should all, it depends, like it really matters how we dress. I'm just saying there's something beautiful about caring about the details. Uh, Taylor Agrippa, who works for us, <laughs> she's like, you know, it's always said that the devil's in the details, but I think God's in the details. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's so good. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to steal that. So I did. I'm like, yes, God's in the details. He cares about that. He cares about just like going, uh, you know, I'll say this. Um, growing up in Southern California, I went to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. The one thing I really do respect so much about our pastor, uh, his name is Chuck Smith. Every time he was done on the radio, he'd do this thing, like um, pastor's perspective. He'd be on the radio from three to four. You'd see him leave the Logos building and he'd get on his golf cart and he had a little like, I don't know, one of those little hand things you could pick up trash with. He'd drive around from four to five every day and just pick up trash. And my thing was, if I had a question and I wanted to track him down, I'm like, I would just go in the parking lot and like find him. Like, ah, there he is. And, like pull over my car, drive next to him. Hey, <laughs> that was terrible. Um, but what I love was like from four to five every day, you saw him picking up trash. And if you ask him why, he's like, God gave us this. We want to steward this well. We care about what God gave us. You know, the non-believer, it might seem shallow to some, but the non-believer who walks in, do they see a dirty thing? <laughs> do they, or do they see something clean and beautiful that people go, oh, they actually care about the things of God? He's a small representation of something much bigger. The whole idea with this, point out this out to you guys, is in verse four and five, it's like she's amazed by everything. Everything amazed her. You're not just wise, you care about your people. You care about the food at their table. She's like, wow, this amazes me. There is something about those details. It actually says in verse uh, five, it says, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, it's fascinating. She's speechless, starts speaking. I'm not going to make any woman jokes. I'm not going to do that. It's shallow. I'm not going to do it. But she's breathless and she can't speak and she's talking. I think that's, sorry. Um, I was talking to my wife about this. I'm like, that's kind of how you met me, right? Like you met me and you're speechless by my wisdom. She's like, don't you dare say that. Um, I love that though. She's breathless. She's speechless. And she said to the king, we'll actually read it, verse six. <laughs> it says, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told of me. She says in verse seven, your wisdom and prosperity surpass that I heard. It's, it's unbelievable because normally if you hear something cool or amazing happen and you show up on the scene, you're like, I, I don't know, they kind of hype this up a bit. This is as amazing as I thought it was. But for her, it's the opposite. Like, I heard about this. I had to come check it out. But it's not even half the truth. Like, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I do love this because um, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2 in a very similar way? He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can comprehend or conceive all the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It, it's unbelievable because like, I've heard about you, God. I've heard about you. But in reality, I can't even comprehend all the things. It's not even half as great. We could do a sermon and series on heaven. And at the end of the sermon series, you'd be like, that was amazing. And trust me, obviously when you get there, you're like, mm, that was not half as good as I thought it was going to be, right? Like once I saw it, it surpassed everything. This is her experience. She's like, ah, it just overwhelmed me. The things I heard is better than that. It, it's just profound. I would love it in that way. Like, man, let's fight for that. Like, how can the world come and get a taste of God? And like, you said God was good, but why didn't you ever tell me he was so good? I'm like, oh, no, I tried. Like, you have to kind of see it for yourself at times. I can tell you, but come, taste, come and see. I think that's the invitation. We'll see this in Easter in a couple weeks. Come and see, come and taste, see it for yourself. You know, I can tell you it's good. I can tell you he's wise, but it's really cool when you see it out yourself. You know, I, I was talking about this with one of our, our leaders, but um, it's funny how, um, so I, I connect with a, one of our leaders over the book of Jeremiah. I don't know. I love Jeremiah. I connect with that book deeply for some reason. I love it. And um, I can quote verses to you from Jeremiah. It might not mean much, but we're, we're talking and having this conversation of how when we both read it kind of privately and alone, we're like, Does anyone, has anyone ever read Jeremiah? Like, it's so good. People should read this. And it's weird how like when you personally discover it yourself, how much more weight it has. Like, I could tell you, Jeremiah is great. And you're like, okay, I hear, yeah. But it's weird how sometimes when you kind of walk through it yourself, you go, oh, wait, it's better than you said. I'm like, I know. I don't know. Like, sometimes you have to, like, seek it out yourself. That's what's happening. She's like, I've heard about this. It's not half as great. People actually downplayed it. It's amazing. And she says something profound in verse uh, 8. I want to read this. What does she say? She says, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Sometimes it takes an outsider to remind us of what we have. You know, sometimes it takes someone to say, do you know what you have? And you go, oh yeah, we do. That's so sweet. Happy are your, happy are your servants who just stand before you and hear your wisdom. Think about King Jesus. Sometimes we need people to remind us like, hey, it's a blessing. It's joyful. 
it's happy to serve the king. Happy are the people who stand before you and serve you continually. Did, I don't know if they always felt that way. Maybe they did. But I almost feel like she's calling to servants to be like, do you understand what you have here? Isn't that crazy? The non-believer, in a sense, is going, do you know what you have? Sometimes I think we need that. Wake up. Do we know what we have? Hopefully there's a sense of like happy are those who serve the king continually. Maybe we need that outside voice to be like, don't, you don't, what you have here is not normal. You should enjoy your king. You should enjoy what he offers you. You should enjoy the king of kings and all that he gives. Happy are the people who serve you. I want you to be reminded that there is a blessing in serving. There's a joy in serving. That you can be happy in serving. You can. You can. We should be reminded of what we have. So to stand before him continually and take in his word. Amazing. To stand before him and say, wow, I can't believe I get to receive the word of God. Amazing. Happy are your people. Verse 9, it seems, maybe it's not a confession of faith, but I want to look at this. Verse 9, she says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. She goes, happy, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed is your Lord. God must love you. God must love Israel, because you're the king for them. And this might not be a classic confession of faith, This is not necessarily like I would read this and go, that's someone confessing faith in God. However, when Jesus references her, and we're going to get back to it, it seems as if Jesus is actually affirming and saying that she'll rise up in judgment. We'll read about that. But it seems as if Jesus is saying, no, no, she she actually responded with a heart of belief. So we're not seeing verse 9, but Jesus seems to tell us in Matthew 12 that actually she responds in belief. She'll one day stand up in a position of judgment against others. The point being that she seems to believe now. And Solomon's God. Can I tell you, the reason why I'm bringing this up is this is basically a partial fulfillment of what God promised Israel. God is like, Israel, if you actually do this right, the non-believing nations will come and believe in me. So she's actually fulfilling Deuteronomy 28 to an extent. Deuteronomy 28 says, uh, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Listen, then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. All the people of the earth shall see that you're called by my name. The, the whole hope in Isaiah 49, 6 says this, that this, the Jewish people were to be a light to the Gentile nations. To say, wow, look at you. Look how blessed you are. Your God must be the one true God. This is based on what's happening with the Queen of Sheba. She's going, this seems to be the, the most legit thing. That your God, your people, this is it. It's like this confession of faith in a sense. Now, I, again, I'll put up the verse here now. Jesus references this story. And this is fascinating to me because Jesus points this out and basically, so this is a a legitimate event, a real person. And he says, this is, there speaks to something much greater. The verse is Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Jesus said, the queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. I want you to see this. Jesus in, in the text was saying the people of Nineveh, Nineveh will rise up in judgment because they repented. Jesus is like, do you not see? A greater than Jonah is here. A greater than Solomon is here. Like this wisdom Solomon had and the non-believing world saying, we got to hear this. He's like, I'm wisdom incarnate. I'm the greater. Think about this claim Jesus makes. He's literally saying, I'm greater than Solomon. The greater than Solomon is here. And you're missing it. She didn't miss it. She went to it. I'm here standing before you and you're missing it. And she'll stand in a place of judgment against you. This idea is that you better respond to the person of Jesus. You better respond to who he is. We have something so much greater than than Solomon. We have not just the wisdom of Solomon. We have the wisdom of Jesus. We have Jesus saying, do you not know who I am? I'm standing before you and you're rejecting me. Well, yet this woman, the queen of the south, the queen of Queen Sheba, will travel miles and miles to get answers. I'm right in front of you, and you're not believing. She'll stand up and judge you in that day. The idea is we must respond to the person of Jesus. We must see that we have something better than 1 Kings 10. We have something better than Solomon. Jesus is like, I'm the greater than Solomon. Listen, here, here, I would say this again, consider Jesus. Wherever you're at, whatever your mindset might be, the idea is Jesus is the most controversial figure who's ever lived, ever existed, every faith, every worldview, atheist, or some sort of faith system has some sort of perspective on Jesus. Explore Jesus. Maybe he's not just some historical figure. Maybe he's not just some wise prophet. 
maybe he truly is the son of God. And obviously I believe he tru- this truly is the son of God. And I'd say how you define Jesus matters. He's saying, look at this woman would travel to hear Solomon. I'm right in front of you and you're not believing. That's not just for Jesus and the disciples and the people then. How much more us right now in this moment, Jesus is going, do you know who I am? You know, bring your questions to me. I can take it. A greater than Solomon is here. Ask away. But don't reject this. She, she went to him. She had her questions answered. She ended up believing. We have something better. We have God in the flesh walking among us. And he's saying, hey, ask away. What is it you have? Bring it to me. I, the point is we need to respond to this person, Jesus. I want, I want us to like consider him, obviously. And maybe some of you already have like, been there, done that. But like, no, still in this ongoing way, Jesus, who are you? I want to know you. How dare I assume because I've read the Gospels, I know everything about you. How dare I assume because I've read it many times, taught on it, that I know everything about it. How dare I assume that? You're the infinite God who walked among us. Consider him. Basically, he's saying, do you not realize what's among you right now? The greater than Solomon is here standing before you. I, I want us to see that. Jesus said, I can offer you wisdom more than Solomon can. I can offer you eternal life. I can offer you things Solomon fell short of. I can offer you what he missed. I can offer you what he lacked. Bring it to Jesus. Yes, amen. The cool thing about this to me in this story is actually in verse 13 too, where you kind of see this idea that um, Jesus is like, I will answer your questions and more. So you look at verse 13. Verse 13, it says it this way. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, beside what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. I love it. He did exceedingly and abundantly above all that she could ask or think. Is this not a promise of the New Testament? That God's like, I can do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you can ask or think. is that amazing? All that you can ask or imagine, I can, do, I can, I can go above and beyond that. We're told in Hebrews 11.6, I love this verse. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and this last phrase, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is her coming to him. Solomon is rewarding the woman who came diligently seeking him. And here's the author of Hebrews saying, God too is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you seek him, if you seek him, you believe that he is, you come to him and you diligently seek him. He goes, he's a rewarder of those who do that. God will reward your seeking. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let's learn from the queen of Sheba. Let's learn from what the author of, the, of Hebrews says. God's like, I want to seek me. I will reward that. Yes, amen. Jesus is the greater than Solomon in every way. Solomon fell short in many ways. That's where Jesus picks up the slack and fulfills it. He is greater, listen, greater than Solomon's wisdom. We'll go through this pretty quickly now. Number two is this. He's greater than Solomon's wealth. Let's just kind of read. This is just more details about around what he had. Unbelievable. You kind of saw this last week too. But look at verse 14. Verse 14, it says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was... 666 talents of gold. Is there something there? Yeah, probably. Uh, Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold, three uh, minus of gold, went to each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. It's now talking about his throne. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were uh, armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the, on the six steps. L- the like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the day of Solomon. Isn't that the best phrase ever? I want some of that. This is considered nothing. Verse 22. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Yo, he had a zoo too. I mean, he's one of those like, you know, Saudi Arabia. This is flying everything we can find. Uh, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Which God has put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. (laughs) Okay. Um, When I say greater than Solomon's wealth, obviously this guy is crazy wealthy. You know, some estimate that basically a billion dollars of gold every three years is coming to this guy. Um, Insane wealth, insane wisdom. 
obviously, and we're going to start to see, I think, cracks right here within Solomon. Obviously, this does not satisfy him. Obviously, it seems the idea that he's flying in apes and peacocks, the idea is like he's now trying more and more things to kind of like, I can have this extravagant lifestyle, not getting fulfilled. Let me, what else can I bring in? Let's have a little zoo. Let's have some apes and peacocks walking around here. The idea, though, is just like, I, I want to experience everything you can experience. So this is the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I wish we had time, like in chapter 10, because we're going to move on soon. But if, when you read this chapter 10 with, in light of Ecclesiastes, it's fascinating, right? Because he's basically saying in Ecclesiastes, I had everything and it was meaningless. He says in Ecclesiastes 5.10, a verse we might know, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. He's like, I had it all and it did not satisfy. Is money evil? No. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is a tool. Yes, absolutely. But you can see here, he goes, but when you have it, this money, verse 10, he who loves it will not be satisfied. He seems to not be satisfied. He could have everything you could imagine. He's like, I, there's still this void. Ecclesiastes seems to be painting that big picture of you can have everything you've ever wanted and still obviously not be satisfied. I kind of want to wait to give commentary because I really want to save a lot for next week on chapter 11. I'm very excited about that text, that portion of scripture. But the idea is like he had everything to have and still was basically mean, if his meaningless, his vanity. It wasn't satisfied. It missed the mark. For some reason though, we hear that we still try to play the same game. For some reason you hear this, we know this. And we're like, well, maybe he was, but let me try. And we try to play the same game and we end up leaving the same way feeling the same way. I think we should learn from the wisdom of Solomon. He was, I believe, the wisest fool that ever existed <laughs> because he said some of the most profound things and yet didn't live it out himself. We're going to see that next week. But it's one of those things we have to learn from. This idea of he had 666 talents of gold, there's so much speculation around this, by the way. Um, Revelation 13, 18, I believe, uh, it is the verse that talks about the mark of the beast and the idea is that the, it's the mark of man is what it says. It's the mark of man, which is 666. Uh, the idea of 666 here might just be implying the mark of man. That, listen, he had what you could have and it didn't satisfy. I actually like how David Guzik said it. He says, this may indicate that the Antichrist may not be someone purely evil from the very beginning. Instead, he may be like Solomon, a good man corrupted. Just the idea of, man, here's a good man that got corrupted. The mark of man was on him. A good man corrupted who fell for something else other than God himself. Here's the thing. Um, he had it all, and still, you can see, was not satisfied. It's fascinating to me because Jesus actually references the glory of Solomon in uh, Matthew 6 and Luke 12. I want to read it because I think this is necessary for us to consider, that you can still have, you, you can still have everything and still be an anxious person. You, you think that the thing will make the anxiety go away. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 12. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, like, like, like a lily. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. It's crazy how in this context of like anxiety, fear, worry, he's like, look at Solomon. He was so beautiful. His throne is mentioned. The glory of Solomon's unbelievable. And he's like, and God clothed in a more beautiful way the lilies. He's basically saying, it's crazy how we think once I attain this, all of my fears, all of my concerns, all of my worries will be wiped away. In reality, that's not the case. In reality, you could have all of it. It's like, no, no, if you have God, you have everything. If you have God, you have everything you need. If he clothes the lilies, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. He's saying, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't get it. If you, you think you get something from God, in reality, you get God, you have everything you need. So it's not, it's not this idea of like, what can I get from him? Get him. And he'll take care of everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his rights, all these other things. Jesus used Solomon as a way to say, don't assume for one moment you could have all of the glory, all of the beauty, everything you ever dreamed of, and you'd be happy. You wouldn't. You'd be satisfied you wouldn't. You still have worries. I'm the only one who can quench the deepest, darkest anxieties and worries of your heart. No thing, no physical thing can do that. Only King Jesus can do that. I can meet your needs and then some. That's what he's saying. I can meet your anxieties and fears and then some. I can give you what you need and still get to that thing in your heart that plagues you, that's always void. I can get to that. Seek first the kingdom. Your father knows you have need of them. I love that phrase. God's like, I get it. I know that you want that, need that. But I also know that you need something more than that. 
That's the God we worship. We have the greater than Solomon in wealth, greater than Solomon's wealth. By the way, it's worth pointing out, look at verse 24. It says, the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God has put into his mind. We cannot forget this. I think this is what went wrong. Imagine if you're Solomon and everyone's coming to you for your wisdom. And the author's like, let me make sure people know which God put into his mind. Basically, don't you dare for one second take credit for what God has given you. If God gave you those gifts, if God gave you that mind, if you're a well-educated, brilliant person, you have all the academics behind you, don't think for a second that was because of your hard study. God gave you the, even the mindset to want to study. <laughs> everything, everything which God put into his mind. The idea is we cannot t- think for a second that you and I can take credit for anything good in our lives. That that is still glory to God for what he's done. That's what he's pointing out in verse 24. I think we're starting to see the, f- the cracks happening and then very clearly in verse 26, and that's why I'm going to say this, we'll end with this. It's a shorter point, but number three, greater than Solomon's weakness. Greater than Solomon's weakness. Look at verse 26. Here's where Solomon, I think, really gets it wrong and then it plays into chapter 11. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the, uh, in the chariot cities uh, and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. I love that. Silver is as common as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shepala. <laughs> Hopefully I said that right. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's trades, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. What's going on here? Just stay with me. It's Deuteronomy chapter uh, 17, I believe. Listen to what he says. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Listen to what God says. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. That's Solomon. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he, listen, here's this command to the king. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. That's exactly where they went, to Egypt. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Don't go back to Egypt. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Solomon did all this. It is crazy because when you read this, it's like almost God's like, like write this down, Moses. Um, I'm literally talking about Solomon. He, everything he does, everything he writes about the king, Solomon does. We're going to read in chapter 11, multiplies wives. He multiplies gold and silver. He multiplies horses specifically through Egypt. The next verse says, and the king shall write down the law, like basically every year. Solomon's supposed to know this. He's supposed to write this down about himself. It's, it's unbelievable, actually. This is where Solomon gets it wrong. He's going, I have everything. This is a really good time to build. Let me turn from trusting God to trusting in horses and chariots right? At Psalm 20, David, Solomon's dad wrote this. He says, some men trust in horses, some men trust in chariots. How many old school 90s people know that song? But we will trust in the name of our God. Sorry. Uh, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. I love that. David's like, some people, when they start to get, they want more, and they turn their trust to the horses and chariots. But we are going to trust the name of the Lord our God. I love what Solomon wrote. Solomon wrote this and forgot. He goes, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. So if David says, don't trust in horses and chariots. The law says, don't multiply horses. Solomon does all of it. Solomon recognizes he should trust in the name of the Lord his God. He says that name is a strong tower and the righteous run to it. They're going to be safe. But yet what? He stopped trusting in the name of God. He started trusting in horses and chariots. And obviously, this is, this is where it's fractured completely. People seeking him out. They love him. Queen of Sheba's amazed, blessing God. And you just see, see this slow kind of fade into, let's, what else can we fly in? How else can I fill this void? How can I go completely against God's word? Listen, I want to end with this because Solomon wrote only two psalms. This is fascinating. Solomon wrote Psalm 127, which we already went over. And Solomon also wrote Psalm 72. And when Solomon wrote, what Solomon wrote sounds a lot like him, but it's about a future king. And it seems to describe him, but also it seems to describe another future king. So I just want to end with this. Psalm 72, listen to this. Solomon writes, Long may he, the king, live. <laughs> He's writing this. He's the king. I love it. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. Yeah, that happened. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. 
May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. In many ways, obviously, this speaks of Solomon so clearly. But just like so many prophetic verses, there's just a dual meaning. May his name be blessed forever. May all the nations come together, bless his name. This is the other king, the king that would come after Solomon, the king who that, that would unite. King Solomon's life ends with his kingdom being divided. We see another king come on the scene, scene and his name is blessed forever, the greater than Solomon, King Jesus. The point of this is saying, God is greater than your weaknesses. Though Solomon blew it, and he blew it epically, though he went after the hearts or the gods of the, his wives, though he, he turns away from the Lord, we have a greater than Solomon whose name lives on forever, who with the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So that he is some trust in tor- horses, some trust in chariots. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's power, there's salvation in the name of Jesus. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name Jesus. Do you trust in that name? That is the name that's offered to you and I today. Everything else will fail us. Everything else will fall short, but the name of Jesus will endure forever. People will call his name blessed forever. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion as a a way to remind ourselves that though we fail, though we fall, because of what Jesus did for us, because of his stripes, because of his blood, you and I can now be at peace with God. So here's what we're going to do. Communion, hopefully, is you got it when you walked in. We're going to take a second just to worship, to sing, to pray. I want to just be really clear here. If you believe in Jesus, during this time, pray, thank him, saying thank you, Jesus, for what you have done, your gifts, your salvation, your work. And if you do not believe in Jesus, there's no need. Why take communion? Why try to remember something you don't believe in? Don't take it. But you can call upon the name of the Lord, even now. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe in Jesus. This is God's way of salvation for us today. And we're going to eat and drink to remember his work, his sacrifice, his life, and blessed are we who stand before him continually to hear hear his wisdom. Amen? So let's do this. Grab your communion. I'm going to pray really quick. As soon as I say amen, we're going to have a time of just worship. And I'm going to ask you guys to you pray over this. Thank God for the bread. Thank God for this little juice. And say, God, this speaks of your body that is broken for me, your blood that is shed for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that though I fail, though I like Solomon fail, I have a greater Solomon offered to me and his name is Jesus. Yes? Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you so much that he said a greater than Solomon is here. God, we believe that you are here. God, help us to learn from the queen of Sheba. (laughs) Help us to learn from the people in Jesus' day who did not hear him, who did reject him. Lord, we don't want to make that same mistake. Jesus, we believe that you are the son of God, that you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Jesus, we believe there is salvation in your name. We will trust in the name of Jesus. We will trust in his name. So Father, we just want to thank you. I ask God that you would just be so present, that you speak to us, even as we say amen, that God, we could just look at this bread and just rejoice and celebrate and say, yes, God, thank you. Your body was broken so I could be made whole. Your blood was shed so I could have forgiveness of sins. We thank you for that. There is no one like you, Jesus. We just want to worship you now, remember you now. Remember that though we fail, though we're like Solomon, we have a greater than Solomon who's available to us. And just again, thank you so much, Jesus. In your precious name, feel free to worship, feel free to pray over this. Take some time, you and the Lord, open this up, pray over it, enjoy your God right now.